On the night of June 17th, 2015, a 21-year-old walked into a Bible study of a church in Charleston, South Carolina. The church, practicing good biblical hospitality, welcomed him into their fold with open arms. What they didn't know was that his white supremacist motivations and hate fueled his heart while he was sitting with the church called Emmanuel AME, a predominantly black congregation. At the end of this study, this young man named Dylan Roof took out his pistol and opened fire on this small group of faithful Christians, fatally shooting nine people. The next day, he was caught, and two days later, the families had the opportunity to speak in court virtually to him at his hearing. Now imagine for a moment, what would you say to that person? What emotions would be fueling your heart? Now what they said shocked the country. Nadine Collier, the daughter of victim Ethel Lance, said these three words, I forgive you. And I quote, you took something very precious from me and I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Anthony Thompson, whose wife, Myra Thompson was a victim, said this, I forgive you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change it, can change your ways no matter what happened to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than what you are right now. In the midst of devastation, tragedy, and grief, the families extend forgiveness to the one who extends death to them. Now for me, this has become a, a template. Now, unfortunately, we live in a day where this is not the only situation like this that has happened where there's been an injustice, even a racially fueled injustice. But every subsequent time something has happened, this has become the template for how Christian enemy love looks in real life. What it means for to obey Christ's command, to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. These brothers and sisters, are the example by which my mind now continually goes back to and says, are these future interactions, do they go back to this beautiful initial interaction and how they live up to a certain standard? Today, we are continuing our series on Jonah the anti-hero. And we're finally getting to chapter four. Now, chapter four is often the chapter that's missed in the book. If you go to your children's Bible, it's likely not going to be in that story. 
Usually the story focuses on Jonah running away, the great fish, Nineveh, and them repenting. And then the story typically ends. But chapter 4 has so much complexity and so much revealing of our own hearts that it's not necessarily a children's story. It's definitely for adults. And here in chapter 4, we get to hear Jonah say for himself why he's done what he's done. I mean, the author's been holding out on us. And we now get to see Jonah's heart overflow into his words and actions. Now, we're going to see a few different things today. We're going to see Jonah not live up to the template of his forefathers. We're going to see Jonah fail to remember his own forgiveness that he's received. We're going to see him fail to extend the forgiveness. And yet, he makes one of the most shockingly faith-filled statements in all of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, would you open the hearts of those who hear this morning? May we be moved by your character. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Let me recap this before we get into the text. So chapter 1, God comes to Jonah. Remember, Jonah's name means dove. And son, so he's Jonah, son of Amittai, which literally means dove, son of faithfulness. So this gentle dove who is faithful is anything but that. Instead of doing what God tells him to do, which is to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, he chooses to go to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction. He ends up on a boat where he's looking for an Eden oasis away from his enemies. But instead, he's overthrown by sailors who repent and turn to Yahweh. But he ends up in the belly of a fish. Chapter 2, while he's in the belly of a fish, where he's as far away from God as he possibly can imagine, he's quoting scripture and saying what sounds good, but he never confesses, he never repents, he never apologizes for what he's done. And yet God shows himself faithful. He spits out Jonah or the whale vomits Jonah out and he gives Jonah a second chance. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. So Jonah gets the same word, go to Nineveh. But he goes on a halfway journey. Instead of going all three days, he only goes one day. He gives a halfway message that is devoid of God's love. It's devoid of repentance. It's devoid of the name of God himself, showing that he, only, he has only a halfway heart towards these people. And yet, a whole city repents, even from the kings to the animals. And now we get Jonah's response in chapter four. And just a, a little bit, I love that this story is in the Bible. And I haven't said that yet, but it's, it's really crazy if you think about it. Because a lot of times people look at the Bible as 
filled with heroes that exemplify how we should live. And yet, when you actually get into the Bible, none of these heroes live up to their own standards. And Jonah is a prime example. He is a prophet of God. And yet, it gives us this honest picture of humans failing over and over and over again. The Bible does not sugarcoat God's people. It's very honest about the sinful failings of humanity and our need for a savior. And so with this, we come to Jonah chapter four. It says this, and it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, what was it that displeased Jonah? The fact that the Ninevites repented and the fact that God relented of the, of the punishment he was going to give them. So the fact that God does not punish them in the way that Jonah thinks he deserve, they deserve, this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, as you hear this passage, the first question we always want to be asking as we're reading our Bible is, does this remind me of something else? Does this sound familiar? And if you are, have read any parts of the Bible, especially much of the Old Testament, the middle portion of this is going to be very familiar because it's the most internally quoted passage in all the Bible. Let me, let, we need to first see how Jonah does not live up to the template of the forerunners that have gone before him. And the forerunner or the one that ex- sets the template for all prophets to follow is Moses. And so this passage takes us to Moses chapter 32. Now, as a reminder, God's people were in Egypt. He, God chose a man named Moses to go and be his mouthpiece to set the people free from slavery in Egypt to redeem them or purchase them out of slavery and begin to form them as their own people. So now in Exodus 32, they're out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea and God's starting to give them rules and laws of what it means to be his people. And so Moses is up on a mountain speaking to God in chapter 31. And in 32, the Israelites get a little impatient. They get, a, they get bored. And so they take some of the gold that they looted from Israel and they turn the gold into a cow. They even called the cow Yahweh in chapter 32. And they start to worship it. Now, while Moses is up on the mountain, God says to them, hey, these people, they're doing something that they should not be doing. And God gets angry. And God wants to rid them of that. He wants to bring punishment for their evil. 
But Moses intercedes. He steps into the gap. And he speaks to God. And he says, hey, a few things, God. And this is my paraphrase, okay? A few things. One, if you do that, that's going to be really bad press. It's going to be bad PR for you in Egypt. Think of all that you did to get them out of Egypt. And now you're going to do, you're going to get rid of them as you get out of Egypt. Not a good idea. But second, don't forget you, God, made a promise to our forefathers. And you're a God that lives up to your word. You promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and as a result, all of the people of Israel. You made promises that we would bless the world and that we would be your people. So to get rid of us is you not living up to your promises. And so God does relent of bringing that disaster on the people of Egypt. There were consequences. And so Moses now... He's bringing down the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets that God wrote with his own hands. He's walking down, and Moses becomes so enraged that he throws the stone tablets down on the ground. And then we get to the end of chapter 32, and listen to how Moses responds after cooling down. This is chapter thir- Exodus 32, starting in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see what Moses has done here. He's asking God to forgive them of their sin. Because he knows that justice must be paid for sin. And what does Moses do if he then says, Hey, if you're not willing to forgive them, take the punishment out on me. Blot my name out so that they can be saved. He offers himself so that they can be saved and forgiven. Okay? So Moses continues to see his presence. He then ensures that God will be with them. And then this is where we get to chapter 34. And this is where we see the passage. This is Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 6. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Notice the template. Notice. They sin. You have an intercessor that goes to God on behalf of the people that have sinned, asks that he be, they be forgiven. And if that doesn't happen, offers themselves as a result. That's the template of the forerunners. What did Jonah do? Jonah literally does the exact opposite of this at every step of the way. Rather than offer a message of forgiveness, he offers a message of being overthrown. 
Then when he goes to God, he doesn't offer himself in place of the Ninevites. He actually, because the Ninevites got saved, because they repented, now he wants to die. He doesn't offer his life so that they get saved. He asked God to take away his life because they got saved. I mean, he is the anti-hero. He is the opposite. He does not follow his forerunners. And in doing so, he fails at two things specifically. And the first thing he fails at, he fails to remember that he is a recipient of God's forgiveness. Jonah is a recipient of divine love. He wouldn't be here if it weren't for God's faithfulness to Moses and through his people, all that came before him. He would not have been um, in a nation that loved God because they were chosen by God. What was his failure? He forgot he was in a position where he needed the same graciousness of God extended to him. He needed the same grace the Ninevites did. And he had already received that by being one of God's chosen people. But he completely forgot. Jonah instead cries for death, not for them, but for him. He knows an injustice needs to be paid and someone has to pay it. But Jonah thinks it's better for him to die than for his enemies to relent of disaster. In Jonah 2, we've seen him celebrate God's deliverance. So we know that Jonah knows what deliverance is like. He celebrates it in Jonah 2. He celebrates his own deliverance. But when they are delivered, what does he do? He throws a temper tantrum. This is what Daniel Timmer says. Jonah wants to receive God's grace without being changed by it. And at the same time, to snatch it away from those whose lives are in fact changed by it. Jonah has forgotten that he is a recipient of God's faithfulness. We are a forgetful people. We need constant reminders of what God has done for us. I mean, think of the story of Israel for a moment. They had their whole calendar was around feasts and festivals and fasting. That was to remind them of all of God's faithfulness throughout the generations. Passover and tabernacle and the day of atonement. Yom Kippur, all of these things were baked within their calendar to be reminded of that. So Jonah had been reminded, and yet he still forgets. I mean, if Jonah has been reminded that much, how much more do, are we likely to forget? This is why we regularly gospel ourselves and one another. This is why we always go back, life, death, resurrection, life, death, resurrection, over and over again. It may sound exhausting. It may sound redundant. It's but because we know that it's so easy to forget what we've received from God. And I think one of the reasons why we forget is because we for, um, do not give thanks for what we do remember. 
I think this is why scripture talks about giving thanks so often. I mean, we are in the month of November. This is Thanksgiving month. While our society just thanks nothing, we as believers take the opportunity to thank God for all of his blessings. And so scriptures throughout it talks about giving thanks. And what's amazing is research is starting to back the importance of what gratitude can do. According to the Mayo Clinic, expressing gratitude is associated with a host of mental and physical benefits. Studies have shown that feeling thankful can improve sleep, mood, and immunity. Gratitude can decrease depression, anxiety, difficulties with chronic pain, and risk of disease. Author Amanda Logan of the Mayo Clinic calls it a magic pill. If she could give you a magic pill that would cure you of all these things or limit the effects of all these things, she said that magic pill is gratitude. How often are you remembering what God has done for you? How often do you express gratitude to God for what he, you have received from him? Because here's the thing. Jonah doesn't just forget. He also fails to extend that same love. Because you and I and people can only give to others what we've already received. We don't get to create out of nothing or ex nihilo. We, we can only use the building blocks that God has given us. Okay? We've received the building blocks and we can create out of that. The closest thing that I can think of, of what humans are capable of creating out of nothing is a baby. Women, this is on you. Praise God for this. But even that is using our reproductive system. It's using the basic fundamentals of it. And it still involves God knitting that baby together in that womb. Okay. So we can only extend, create what we've received. So in ways we can look at our inability to give something to others that the Bible calls us to give. We can look at that as an inability to recognize how much it is that we've received. If you're not extending forgiveness, it's an indication that you've forgotten how much you have been forgiven. If you're not extending love and having compassion on people, you likely have forgotten how much you are loved and how much God in Christ has had compassion on you. You don't extend mercy because you haven't recognized that God is merciful. You don't live out patiently or be patient with others because you forgot that God is patient with you. You are angry at outbursts with people because you forget that God has been slow to anger with you. This is Jonah. He does not extend that to the Ninevites. I mean, this is the typically this care, these character traits of God that he's um, gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Typically, that's used only towards God's people. But in this passage, it's actually used to outside the faith, people of the faith. It's you, God's character is being shown and given to people that are not part of the covenant family of God. And Jonah just does not like that. And he does not want to extend that. He wants to keep that grace, keep that mercy, keep that compassion only for his people, not to give it to the others. How often do you not live up to biblical standards because you've forgotten that you've received them from Christ first? I've been wanting to use a, uh, some poems, each of these sermons, from an author named Thomas John Carlyle. It's a little poem book called You, Jonah. This is one of my favorites, most gut-wrenching, but one of my favorites. It's called Tantrum. It says this, The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't you try to forgive me either. Jonah doesn't live up to the template of his forefathers, offering himself so that they can be forgiven. He forgets and he fails to remember how much he's received from God. He fails to extend that to other people. Failure after failure. And yet, he, want, he makes and showcases a tremendous amount of faith in the midst of his faithfulness. Because what does he, in essence, say? Why does he not go to Nineveh in the first place? Verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In essence, this is what Jonah is saying. I know you and I know how you've revealed your character and I know what you are like. And I know that if you have me go to those people, you are the type of God that will forgive those people. Jonah had so much faith. He knew God so well that he knew that if he were to be follow in God's guidance, that God would show up and do what's in alignment with his character. That's crazy to me. He knows God so well. He knew that he would go to Nineveh and they would repent. I mean, think about this. Jonah was not afraid of Nineveh. He says why he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go because he knew God would do what he said he would do. I wish 
I had that much faith. So for us, think about this. Are you, do you know the character of God in a way that Jonah does? I mean, oftentimes when we think of the character of God, we think of the omnis, right? Omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, right? All-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once. These are like these massive, uh, big, powerful attributes of God. But how did God choose to reveal himself to his people? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Not forgetting iniquity, he's going to judge. But he's slow to anger. Do you know God is omnipotent or is compassionate? Do you experience his grace? Have you experienced the person of God in the way that he describes himself? Are you a recipient of that grace? Do you know God's mercy? Have you seen how he could, because of your sin, wipe you out? But he's slow to anger. And then second, do you expect God to move in your life the way that Jonah does here? Let me ask this question another way. Does it surprise you more when God does show up or when God does not show up? What's more surprising to you? Like if you're going out and you're living on mission and you're talking to people about your faith, you're going to reconcile the lost, you're seeing people grow up in their maturity, all these things that God calls us to, right? Are you more surprised when he actually does save people? Or are you more surprised when he doesn't? I mean, if I'm honest with myself, there's been lots of times in my life when I've been being down to the point where it's like, I'm, I'm just hoping God shows up. I'm not, sh- I'm not faith-filled, confident that God's going to do something. I'm just begging God, would you just do, like, please? Where are you in this? I'm, I've, I have a heart that's more often surprised when he does show up. And this has been convicting of me looking at Jonah because he's, faith, he's not faithful. And yet he's faith-filled. It doesn't lead him to obedience, but he still expects God to do what he's going to do. So when you think about sharing your faith, are you expecting God to save that person or are you surprised when he actually does? When you think of your children, if you're still raising your family, are you expecting them to go off into the world and be lost? Are you expecting and have faith that God's going to keep them? Do you have broken relationships that are needing to be redeemed? Do you expect them to be redeemed or are you surprised when they are? When we think of gospel saturation in a city in need of transformation, are you surprised That God shows up? Or are you surprised when he doesn't? I mean, I want us to be a people that knows the character of God, is moved by the character of God, experiences the person of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that we are living out and participants of the divine nature, as 2 Peter says. And we know that when God asks us to do something, 
when he, the Spirit empowers and nudges and leads, we expect God and to do what's in line with his character, to continue to show his mercy, to continue to show his grace. I want us to be a, pe- a people, a church, a family, so filled with a knowing of God, so aware of what we've received but from God, that as we extend it to others, we have the faith that he will do it. Now, this isn't a vending machine where it's like, I have faith, therefore God does. I'm not, this is not a prosperity gospel thing. This is us just being in a line with the character of God. Do you trust that God's going to move in your life? Do you believe that he's going to extend grace through you? Do you think he wants to show you mercy? Are you waiting for the other shoe to drop? Expecting God to be angry with you because of your continued sinful life or practices? Or do you know that there's a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster? Do you know that there's a God like that? And you've experienced it and you live it out. And we don't have to be like Jonah following failing to follow a template. But we can look to Jesus, who is the perfecter of this. Jesus is the perfect Moses, right? He follows the template perfectly. He, God himself, extends us his grace and his mercy. The prophets are supposed to offer their life for the sake of others. Jonah offers his life because of others' salvation. But Jesus offers his life for the salvation of others. We are recipients of this grace and mercy. We've received this love from Christ on the cross. The cross is the way that we will always know of God's grace and merciful, his slow to anger, his abounding in steadfast love, and his relenting from disaster. Why can we know that? Because he hung from the cross to show it. The cross, his life, his resurrection are the means by which we can receive the, all that has God, God has for us and the means by which we can look to extend it by the power of the Spirit to the others. That is what the gospel does. That's what we need to be reminded of, what we need to be grateful for. Jonah failed to live up to the template of the forefathers. He failed to remember what was he received from God. He failed to extend what he had already received. And yet he has a faith that knows that God is going to do what he says. Brothers and sisters, may we be a people that know the love of God in Christ for us, that extend that to others and see God work and expect God to work in only ways that he can work.